Well, good morning. We have been um, going through the book of Proverbs, talking about proverbial life, and we've been focusing on different aspects of that. Uh, Last week, we talked about proverbial love. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about uh, proverbial character, and this concept of character is uh, really just how we're defined when we look at those mental and moral attributes that make us who we are. The things that we think about, the things we reflect on, that, that philosophy that guides our life, that ends up being our actions and what we do with others and for others and around others, people see that and they look at us and they assign to us a particular character trait, a particular character, and we decide whether a person is a good person, has good character, or a bad person, has bad character, and it's done just that way. Today, as we dive into this one, it's just one more example of how, through Proverbs, wisdom is speaking to so many of these themes. And as we mentioned last weekend, there are scattered throughout the the church campus, uh, there's chalkboards that are put all over the place, and we encourage you to search them out, like wisdom that is a little bit of a kind of a treasure hunt trying to find them. But there's about 10 of them scattered throughout, and if you can find them, there will have some point of wisdom written on them, and then we ask that you might come and write something that God's taught you, that a bit of wisdom that's come to you from a family member, something you've read, a friend who's taught you, somebody who's mentoring you, discipling you, but a a particular bit of wisdom or advice that you could put on there that corporately we would come together and share that wisdom there as well. The book of Proverbs is that. It's wisdom that's collected from all over and put together. And then in this particular case, it's going to be about character, how we develop our character, how it shapes us. And specifically, we're going to dive into the concept of pride and humility. Now, I know as soon as I say that, that some of you are like, oh, I can probably leave because I don't have a problem with pride, so I don't need that and I can leave. And thereby we'll know that you're the one that's prideful. So it's one of those deals where as soon as somebody starts talking about pride, you're like, ah, yeah, well, bear with me because we're not actually going to spend the majority of the time on pride. We're going to talk about it briefly, just the the general concept of what it is. As a definition, we're going to simply just say that pride is our preoccupation with self. It's the point in time where we think more about ourselves than anybody else, where we're constantly self-focused, we're always concerned about our needs, about our desires, about how we look and feel to others as opposed to anybody else. That's a simple definition of pride. There's probably a thousand different definitions you could use. That's the one we're going to use today. And the concept of humility is just simply going to be a soul that is preoccupied with God, whose soul is, is focused on the presence and, and the, the abiding nature of God. And so that's going to be what we play out as we jump into this. I want to start with Proverbs 6. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 6. And there's a list here of what is, is basically a list of character traits that you don't want to have. So we talk about good character, bad character. It doesn't much matter. Just character itself doesn't, isn't definitive of any particular value. It's, it's whether it's, it's those things that would be on a good list and things that would be on a bad list. As we look at verse 16, we are going to jump into a bad list. Proverbs 6, verse 16. 
There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So when we look at this list, one is it kind of goes through the body. If you look at that, it, it starts to talk about a lying tongue and it just moves down all the way down to the feet. But it's not so much that it's a biological part of it, but the thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at it and see right off the bat, the first one on the list is pride. As we look at it, it stops and says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes is the first one. Pride at that point, as we look at it, and the theologians over the centuries have all agreed and said that pride is that first sin. It is the root of all other sin, the cause of it. It's the thing that sets everything else in motion. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, really, every sin, because I'm pretty creative with my sins. So I'm thinking, did all of those sins come off and kick off of pride? Now, by the way, when I thought I was pretty creative with sin, that's kind of pride in and of itself. It starts showing up everywhere. It's like, stop it, stop it. But what happens with this is that when we look at it and say, all right, pride itself is there, sure enough, if you think about it, even from the very beginning, when Satan falls from heaven, it's pride. It's himself looking at God and thinking he too could be like God. And so that starts the fall. But if we go to the garden, then we have Adam and Eve in the garden, and there in the garden, what happens? It's a point of pride. It's a point where the temptation to them is that if you taste this fruit, you too will be like God. And it's an appealing to their pride. In fact, even the scenario is God told us he could, we could eat anything in the garden except this one fruit, and they look at it and go, yeah, but what does God know? We're going to eat that one fruit. That as we look at it, every sin from the very beginning starts out of this. So if that's the case, we could go through this list and do just that. We're not going to do it with everyone, but the very next one, a lying tongue. How is a lying tongue launched out out of pride? Well, because of our preoccupation with self, what we do, the number one reason why we lie is to protect ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to make ourselves look better. We do these things all the time. And we think we're godly people, we think we're good people, but along the way, we, we let little things out just simply because our preoccupation was self. So this happened to me yesterday. I was with a group of friends. We were driving back on a road trip, and as we were coming back, we had, I'd been assigned the, the playlist, to, you know, set the music for the drive, and so we had gotten into this thing where we were simply just going through songs and... I would just go through and play the first part of a song and see if they could name, you know, who sang that song, what was the name of the song, and invariably we would all burst into song singing along. And um, I went on to Spotify and I pulled out a list that was just uh, the greatest hits from the 60s, you know, based on who was writing with me, my friends, that was, they were all from the 60s, so I figured they'd know these songs. And so I started going through it and we're playing it, we're having a great time singing along, laughing along, going along. And... And then uh, my friend John, he looks over at me and he goes, Jeff, these songs, they're all just so great. He says, is this your list? Yes. <laughs> yes, this is my list. No, it's coming off my phone, right? This is my phone. And I paid for the subscription for Spotify. So this is my list. 
No, it wasn't my list. But I didn't say that to John. I told him yes. Why did I tell him yes? It's my pride. I wanted him to think more of me that in that moment, I was enjoying it, he was enjoying it, and he was like, this is cool, Jeff, is this yours? Well, yeah. Yeah, this is mine, and, and I lied. I just confessed in the last service, he was here, and I had to confess to him <laughs> that it wasn't my list, and it was a bad thing, so a lying tongue. The thing about it is, is that we should be terrified that anything on that list is in our heart. Because this is what the Lord hates. This is what the Lord abominates. These are things that he doesn't like. And here, it just came out of me so quickly in exchange for what? That I might get John to think more of me because I had a playlist from the 60s? I didn't write those songs. I didn't sing those songs. I have, there is no credit to me that I pulled together and I typed in the greatest hits from the 60s. That was my effort. Wow, what a great guy I am. Those are the problems of pride. And as it comes, these things should terrify us that they're a part of us. But here's the thing. Um, When we talk about pride, we kind of just like push it off to the side and go, I think I'm doing all right with that. But see, there's two types of egotists in the world. There are the, the one that will admit it and then all the rest of us. We all wrestle with it. We all struggle with it. It's a difficult thing for us. The thing about it is, is that the book of Proverbs, when it starts talking about character, it, it wants to walk us off the edge, away from the edge. It wants to stop and say, there's a better way. And so the first thing that we want to look at is to understand that the antidote for pride is humility. So instead of saying, I'm not going to be prideful, I'm going to try really hard and not be prideful now, that I'm going to do my very best, and then once we beat it and we're not prideful, then we can high-five ourselves and say how good we were that we beat down pride. And once again, we're prideful. We can't get away from it. So instead, there's this antidote of humility is the thing that does it differently. It's where with humility, when we're no longer preoccupied by self, if we choose instead to be preoccupied with God himself, we listen to him, we're paying attention to him, and that changes things. That begins to change our heart and how we respond. So if you turn to Proverbs 15, this is the passage that we read at the beginning of the service, that with Proverbs 15 and the first part of 16, we start to lay out this path towards humility. And the first thing that you're going to see here is just simply the concept that we would listen. And this is how it plays out. You'll see it in verse 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. That just this little simple act of listening becomes the thing that begins to change us. That the concept of listening to instruction is the opportunity for us to say, you know what, I don't know everything, and maybe I could learn something from what comes next. And this plays out all the time in my life. I know probably none of you ever have this scenario happen. It, it tends to be, as I talk to friends, it tend, I think it more of a guy thing, but I don't know. Women probably do it too. But it, the way it works is this. If I'm looking for something in our house and I don't know where it is, I go to my wife. And I ask my wife, where is this, Eugenie? Is it, 
yeah, I can't find it. And she stops and says, it's in the back room, in the closet. You open up the left door and it's down. By this point in time, I'm no longer listening to her. I'm walking down the hallway because she told me it was in the closet. That's all I need. I don't need the rest. It's in the closet. And then I go to the closet and I open the closet and I look. And I don't see it there. It's not there. And I come back to her and I tell her, I go, it's not in the closet. Where else would it be? And she goes, no, it's in the closet. And I go, no, I've looked in the closet. It's not there. She then goes back to the closet. We walk together and I am so glad to show her when she looks to find that it's not in the closet. And everything that she said was, it's in the closet. If you open the left door on the bottom shelf behind the blue thing, it's right back there. You'll have to pull the blue thing out to get it. Now, I didn't hear that because I was already walking because I was pretty sure I knew it was in the closet. She goes down and pulls out the blue thing and there it is in the closet. You see, the biggest problem we have is exactly what Proverbs is saying here is listen. Just simply listen. That the God of the universe wants to actually guide us and to to take us down paths that are going to make our character, good character, not just good character, but character like him, godly character. He's going to instruct us in his ways, not our ways. But in order to take instruction, we have to listen as these verses just talked about. And this passage, as it goes along, it's, it's laying out the concept that we have to have a right view of God and a right view of us. Some people, that's the definition of humility, is it says an accurate view of yourself will humble you. If you saw yourself as you really are, that's actually going to be pretty humbling in and of itself. But to have a right view of yourself and a right view of God changes how we look at this entire thing. So the concept here is dealing with with the position and the authority of who God is. So we have this throne behind us. Um, This is actually for Vacation Bible School. I know some of you thought that this is for the triumphal re-entry of Darren coming back next week, but that's not his throne. That's actually a prop for Vacation Bible School that starts next week. If you have kids, bring them, sign them up, bring grandkids, neighbor kids. If there's kids walking down the road, just drive by with a van, throw them in the van and bring them to Vacation Bible School. Give them some good instruction. The, the, it's, a, it's about the kingdom is the theme of Vacation Bible. And don't do that, by the way. Please, a disclaimer, timeout. Um, the, the concept is this, the theme for Vacation Bible School is the kingdom of God, about he being the king, him being on the throne, and this concept is really simple. The issue is, is who's on the throne? Am I on the throne playing king, or is God on the throne playing king? And that lays it out entirely as being this whole issue of authority. Now, here's the deal, though. When we recognize his authority, if we see God as who he is, we surrender to that authority. If we don't see God as who he is and we are just focused on ourselves, we don't surrender to that authority. We hang on to the reins. I'm not teaching you anything that's not new. This is you living out every moment of your life. You're making these decisions of whether you see God on the throne or whether you just see yourself in control. Here's the thing, that little issue of beginning to simply surrender to him is the key point for all of this. That if we talk about the problem of pride, and we all have it, we all wrestle with it daily, constantly, 
that that problem of pride is, is huge in front of us, that what we have in us is that ability to have that antidote for pride of being humility, and the ability for humility to play out is just the simple aspect of surrender, of giving up, of letting it go. To illustrate this point, I, I want to tell a story that happened uh, several years ago at Hume when I was on staff there. Hume, we would play games with kids all the time. It's part of what makes camp fun. And as we go along, we have favorite games. And one of the games that have lasted a long, long time is a game called Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible is played with our junior kids. Their age is 8 to 11, just the little people that are pre-people. They haven't even quite fully developed yet. And we would take those kids and we'd go out at night and it was best on a moonless light, no lights at all. You're up in the mountains, it's super dark. And we'd take them out in the woods and just send them out off to where the animals are, the bears and the lions and the tigers, oh my. And we put them out there and there's sticks and rocks and just get them out there. And we turn off all the lights. And the way the game works is they go out into the woods And then we take a staff member and there's a big rock and the the staff member stands there with a flashlight on top of the rock and looks out. And then the kids are supposed to sneak in without being spotted and touch the base of the rock. So it's dark. That seems like a pretty simple solution. They just sneak in. But the staff have a flashlight and they're moving the flashlight around like a big searchlight looking for kids who might happen to be sneaking in to touch a rock. So as they move the flashlight around looking for the kids, they'll move it over the kids and the kids will dive behind trees and you get a picture for that. Now, I loved playing this game when I was a camper, a little kid. It was one of my favorite games. I never made it to the rock. It was always difficult. There were some people who would, but I never made it. When I got to be a staff member, I wanted so badly to be the guy on the rock with the flashlight, and I couldn't wait till that time, and I got the flashlight, and I stood up out on the rock, and we sent all the kids out into the dark forest, and there they're all out there, 200 junior kids, totally no parents, no supervision, don't ever send your kids to Hume, all right? Totally irresponsible. I was ready to turn on that flashlight and start the game, and then I realized something. I didn't need the flashlight. I could see out, and without the aid of the flashlight, I see all the kids. I could see them moving around everywhere. This wasn't hard. And I realized the staff everywhere had always seen us. They had all known that we were there. And so suddenly, I instantly, I didn't have to be taught. As soon as I turned on the flashlight, it wasn't just to spot a kid, because I could spot them without the light. This was just simply to toy with their heads, to play with them, to mess with them. Because here they are, and they think they're sneaking and bring the light over and slowly pass it by as if I didn't see them. There's movement over here somewhere. Are you kidding? There's 200 kids moving everywhere. It's like a bunch of ants all over the place. So the game starts, and my friend Rich, he's up on the rock, and these kids are moving through, and the way the game works is as he spots them, he moves the flashlight by him to kind of slow him down, to get him to hide a little better, and if there's a kid that's not really trying, he just puts the flashlight on him and blows his whistle and says, you're dead! And then he's moving along, and this kid's going, and he moves it by, but he dies behind a tree, okay, and then another one gets him to hide, and gets another one, here's not, blows the whistle, you're dead! And he's just picking off these kids little by little. He notices over here, though, that there are two kids that are moving in, and they're not even hiding behind trees or rocks. They're out in the open. So he puts the light over them a couple of times to see if they'll move and hide, and they don't hide. So he's like, that's silly. So he puts the light on them and blows the whistle. You're dead. And then he's going over here. You're dead. 
And he comes back and he sees the two kids. When you're dead, you're supposed to get up, walk off the field, and go off to the side. As he's doing this, he notices they don't get up and walk off. They're still crawling forward. So he puts the light back on them and blows it again. You're dead! And he comes back over and gets another kid here, chases over a few more, and he looks, and these guys are still coming. So he puts the light straight on them, and they freeze. They're totally motionless. It's not like they're camouflaged or anything. They're just standing there really still. Like no one will see us here. And the flashlight's like totally big spotlight right on him. He blows a whistle. You're dead. Goes back. And sure enough, they keep coming. They're coming. And he puts the light on them. They're getting closer to the rock. He puts the light on them, blows the whistle. And he's standing there. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. And about this time, the two kids look up at him, and as he sees their face, he sees for the first time that they're the two deaf kids we had in camp that week. Here's the thing. You know, that's, that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it? Just leave it right there. Let's pray. This point... Is not, it is about listening and hearing the voice of God, yes. But the issue is the surrender. It's about surrender. You see, at that moment, the problem that was wrong with the game was that as they looked up, there's this point where if God is telling you what to do and you totally ignore him and do not surrender your will to him, that is pride. That is sin. That is something God hates. That the whole issue of the antidote for pride is just simply to surrender, to give it up. That that's obedience. Andrew Murray, in his little book called Humility, aptly titled, it's about humility. And it's a really thin book. So if you are looking for a book to read, I would recommend it. It's very thin. You can probably just find it online on public domain. But it's a quick read. And if you want to say you read a book this week, you could read it in about probably 30 minutes. Very short, worthwhile read. But in the introduction, he talks about three types of humility we as Christians face. And he lays it out this way. He says, there is the humility we face as creature and sinner and saint. And it simply goes like this. As creature, we are created beings. None of us got up in the morning and said, someday I'm going to exist. We got up in the morning because we already existed. Somebody made us. We didn't have a hand in that at all. Some of us look in the mirror and go, wow, I got a great smile. Well, where'd the smile come from? It wasn't something you really worked hard at. It was a gift to you when you were created. Your ability to see, to hear, to taste, all those things are gifts of what God has given you. If we think about the fact that we're created beings in a universe that is so, so incredibly awesome that we can't even begin to fathom it. I heard a podcast just the other day of one of the astronauts who'd been up in space and he said, somebody was asking, what's it like to look down on the earth in the atmosphere? And he said, well, it's actually pretty humbling because as you look at it, you realize that the atmosphere that we live in, that part between the earth's crust and the part where it's outer space, the part that we can breathe and not die, he says that's, that's kind of tantamount to being like an apple. If you take an apple and you look at the skin of the apple, we live where the skin is. And we barely know that part of the world. 
We know nothing about the core of the earth, and when we go up, it only goes bigger and broader until we're out in our own solar system, and we go beyond that into the galaxies, into the universe, and as long as they take the Hubble telescope and polish it up and put another lens on it so they can see further out, do you know what they find? More. Literally in my lifetime, they have changed the age of the universe five times. Because as they get a better telescope, the universe goes further out than they first said. And as it goes further out, they have to rewrite all their theories about how the age of the universe is. We only know because that's as far as we can see. And the fact of the matter is we, it's further every time. We should be humbled by the fact that we're living in this little thin layer. Everybody take a breath. You have any idea how that's keeping you alive? And some of you are medical people and you're going, yeah, I can explain it. Oh, that's pride. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> Here's the deal. Sinner, creature, sinner, saint. Creature, that should humble us. Sinner, that should humble us. The fact that we've sinned, we've actually gone against God, the things that we've done should embarrass us and humble us because of what we do daily. I just had to apologize about lying yesterday to one of my friends. Well, I'd apologize today. I didn't apologize yesterday. I let him think for at least a while that I was, had good playlists. What a ridiculous thing that we would revel in our sin when the sin should actually be humbling. We should be humbled by the fact that God had to send his son to die for us to cover those sins so that we could have a relationship with that God. That should be humbling. But here's the thing, Andrew Murray goes on and he says, but that's not the point. The point about all of this is the third one. Creature, sinner, saint. We should be humble because we've been created. We should be humble because we sin. And he says the third one is the one that Christ has and that's as saint, that you should be humble because you're a saint and when you look at it, you're like, wait, what is that about? I don't get that. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is fascinating when you think about it this way. But in Philippians chapter 2, it lays out completely differently. And most of us know these verses. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I don't know if you caught it, but this is the point that you would underline or write down in your notes. This is the part you want to remember. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Think about it for just a second. Here's Jesus Christ. We're supposed to have them, our, our mind is supposed to be like his. How does he think about humility? Not as a creature. He's never been created. He is the creator. So he can't sit there and humble himself and think, well, I'm a creature, so therefore I'm going to be humbled. He can't do that. Take on sin. He didn't commit any sins. He cannot be humbled by the sin that he's done. So he can't be humbled by being a creature. He can't be humbled by being a sinner. But we're supposed to be like him and be humble. Which one are we supposed to do? The third one. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be humbled by the first two. But the one that we're supposed to do to have more godlike character is to be humble 
to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient. And you're thinking, what does that mean? Really simple. Tell the two gardens. The first garden, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there's a point in time where they have a chance to be obedient and do what God had given them instructions. If they listen, if they submit to who he is, and he says, you can eat of any fruit in the garden except this one, if they would have done that, that would have changed everything. But they didn't. Instead, they chose their own will over God's. But the second garden is the one that Jesus is in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he is betrayed and sent off to the cross to be crucified. Jesus himself comes down to this critical decision, and he comes down and he says, Lord, I would that this this could pass, that this cup would pass from me. But then he says these fateful words, not my will, but thine be done. Surrender. He surrendered. He lets go. Obedience is just simply letting go. It's us saying, I no longer want to be the one that controls everything in life, but I'm willing to surrender and allow God to have that authority in my life, and I am going to obey him and follow him. And that humility is the antidote for pride. As long as we think we should take back the reins, all right, I gave it to God for a little bit, but now I'm going to take it back because he helped me. That's like me walking down the hallway to check the closet. I've only got a little bit, and I'm going to need him as soon as I make the next decision in my life. This humility thing is one where we should be humbled by creation. We should be humbled by our sin, but ultimately it's obedience. Now look at this passage here once again in uh, Proverbs We just finished up the last part of 15. The the first part of 16 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If you haven't noticed, the Lord is showing up in every verse. This is the concept of position. Remember, right perspective of who we are, right perspective of who he is. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, here's the concept. This last verse, when a man's ways please the Lord. This idea in and of itself, when we understand that this is the Lord, the creator of the universe, and he has a relationship with us and actually invites us in to surrender our life, our choices to him, and what we do in a given day, that what we do can actually please God himself. What you do can please God. Not please the elders of the church, not please I don't know. Who, who do we go up to next? The angels? When we start going through the line, it's not talking about pleasing everybody else in the congregation and everybody's pleased by you. It's that if you do these things, these things will please God himself. That means God on his throne is watching you and notices you. So years ago, while I'm working at Hume, one of my early jobs was to work with the high school department. So I got a 
a long job because the job required me to stay up late. And so as I'm staying up, high school students stay up late, and I stay up late, but then I got to be up early, and you just go long summer, and, and I'm getting tired. And it's a difficult time in my life where there's a lot of things that aren't going well. And I'm getting in arguments with my kids, and I'm getting in arguments with my wife, I'm getting in arguments with other staff members, and I'm tired, and I'm exhausted, and I'm on wit's end, and I'm a little bit kind of miffed at God, because as I'm serving Him, and I'm serving Him in camp, and I'm deciding to work for this ministry, and they're paying me just a little bit of money, and I have this family, and I can barely take care of Him, and every time I I think I'm getting ahead, the car breaks down. But then I'm thinking, all right, Lord, don't you even care about me? You know, here I am trying to make ends meet, and, and you, you can't even keep the car running, as if that was his responsibility. But along the way, the car breaks. I get a check in the mail, and it's for $320. And when I take the car to the mechanic, guess how much the bill is? $320. But the way I think is, is, is it's like, that's not a great thing. A great thing would have been $325. A little bit more, and why not 500 or 5,000? It's like, come on, Lord, if I'm doing this work for you, are you, are you not aware of the difficult things I'm going through? Do you not know that I'm tired? Do you not know that? And so I cry out to God, God, are you there? Are you even listening anymore? And so one day I am praying, and in my life is just, it is not good. I am, I am not happy, and I'm crying out to God, and I say, God, are you even there? And he answers with this. You've heard that answer before? It's silence. And I'm, I'm just ticked. I'm like, God, I don't know how much longer I can do this. What am I doing here? If I'm serving you, it seems like you could at least let me know that you're aware that I'm working hard. And this is what I get. And I literally am thinking to myself, God, I can't get any lower than this. Now, about this time at Hume, they had hired a guy to help deal with some problems they were facing at Hume, and they had to make some hard, critical decisions. And so they had hired somebody whose job was to let people go, to fire them. And he was moving around to my friends, and he was talking to my friends and dismissing them from staff and letting them go. And so I'm in my house, and I'm praying, God, I can't get any lower than this. And there's a knock on the door, and it's my friend Bruce who's letting everybody go. And it's as if the Lord's saying, want to bet? I can get you a little lower. So at this point, Bruce says to me, Jeff, can you come out on the porch? I need to talk to you for a second. And I'm thinking, yeah, I would rather get fired out there than in front of my kids. I don't want them to see me cry, you know, and lose my job right in front of my family. So at that point, we walk out onto the porch, and Bruce says to me, he says, Jeff, I don't know how to explain this to you, but what I need you to do is uh, I need you to bow your head. See, for the last two weeks, God has been thumping on me and he's been telling me, I need you to go pray with Jeff. And I've been thinking, that's the weirdest thing in the world that I would go pray with Jeff. What am I supposed to say to him? Hey, Jeff, God's told me I need to pray with you. And he says, so I've been putting God off and just giving him a strong arm and just ignoring him and not listening. But he just keeps hammering me and hammering me. So if you don't mind, would you bow your head? I need to pray to get God off my back. We bowed our heads, he prayed, and I cried. And I cried and I cried because at that moment, the God of the universe, who was sitting on his throne, had reached down through all time and space to put his hand on me to say, Jeff, I do hear you, I do know, and for two weeks I've been trying to get Bruce to tell you that. 
That moment for me was life-changing because Bruce finally surrendered, Bruce finally listened, and Bruce finally obeyed. And the God of the universe roots through all the time and space to say, I, the God of the universe, know about you, Jeff. You may be living in your life and thinking, no, he doesn't know, he doesn't care. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, this is God himself speaking, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That should be humbling. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That God himself says, this is the one to whom I will look that I will see you. I will know the pain you're in. I will know the hardship you're in. I will know the humiliating things you've been brought through. And God stops and says, I see you. I know you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. But I thank you for this incredible power that you have to see me. And Lord, I know that in this room there are people that are wrestling with difficult things and and many of them have heard only silence from you. And I would ask, Lord, that today you would reach out to them, that they would feel your arms around them, that they would know that you care about them. But Lord, with that as well, that we would all come away with the understanding of who we really are in your presence. And Lord, more importantly, we would understand who you really are in our presence that, Lord, we would recognize that you are our sovereign Lord and King and that you are far beyond anything we can imagine. Lord, may our humility be nothing more than this, that today and in the coming weeks, that when we hear your voice calling to us to obey, we would have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus and simply humble ourselves by being obedient, that by that, Lord, we would be able to deal with our pride and come to a point of godly character that we would be men and women just like you. And we ask these things in your name, amen.